Yes, sir. <laughs> Kendall, you can click if you want. It is a glorious opportunity for me to be able to talk to you about the great reward of being able to walk daily, humbly, with the king. Adding the word humbly to walk is important because that is the proper response to God, to humble ourselves before or under the mighty hand of God, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6, to understand who I am in creation, to understand who I am in relation to others, to understand who I am in relation to the God who created all, walking daily, not just haphazardly, not just one day out of the week, but it's a progression of steps, walking. It is a journey. It is a journey headed to a destination. We are those, Eugene Peterson said in his book, The Practice of Godliness, we are those who spend our lives going to God. And so we do that through Jesus Christ. We walk toward the ultimate destination of being in the presence of our God. My favorite passage in all the Bible for a very long time has been Psalm 16 and verse 11 where David says, in his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forever. That's such a rich statement in Scripture. That's what everybody wants. They would like to have a joy so full, so deep, so unending. In your presence is such a joy, David said. And at your right hand are pleasures forever. The problem is people, every person wants that. They just don't know where to find it. Or they don't believe that God is the answer for that discovery. And so I want to encourage you this week to know the delight of walking daily, humbly with the king. I mentioned at the beginning of the class that there were some books that I read that really changed the way I viewed my faith and my walk. And one was that book, Knowing God, by J.I. Packer. The other was not as great of a work. In fact, I don't know that it's even available anymore. But it was the title that got me. The God They Never Knew. The Tragedy of Religion without a relationship. Now the title may have been the best part of that book, but I got to tell you, there are a lot of people living that. They have a religion. They have a belief system. They strongly believe in the reality of God. But they are not walking daily with Him. It is the tragedy of religion without a relationship, and that's certainly what the Pharisees exemplified, even though they claimed to be people of prayer. And we'll have more to say about them tonight. The other book that I read was a little book by J.B. Phillips, 
that's still available on Amazon for a very small price, called Your God is Too Small. And that book just really opened my eyes to just how large God is. And to see Him bigger and greater than I had seen Him before, I think so often our thoughts of God are just way too small for who He is. And hopefully the first lesson from Psalm 139 will help us a little bit with that. This morning, I want to take you to Isaiah 35. Again, I have some more introductory things to say, and I'll probably save those for tonight or throughout the week. It's good to be with the Nelson family for uh, the first time, and it's really good to get to know all of you, and uh, the potluck yesterday was a nice beginning to getting to know some of you. And I'm looking forward to the morning studies for those of you who have availability in the morning and want to get out and study the Bible, uh, and it's not all going to be one-sided. I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to get your participation, and we're going to study the life of King Asa. How much do you know about that king in Judah's history? It's a rich and fascinating story with a lot of application to our lives, and so for three days, we'll be looking at the three chapters in Second Chronicles that deal with the life of King Asa and lessons that we can learn. Now, I'm a big Isaiah fan. That happened several years ago when I started to realize that in the latter parts of Isaiah, there are all kinds of of rich statements and portraits drawn of God's intentions for Israel. Jerusalem shall be a praise in all the earth. In the same context where he talks about the new name that would be given. Isaiah chapter 62. Well, if you read that and you were a Jew living at that time, you thought, wow, somewhere down the road, Jerusalem, the city, is going to be really spectacular. The whole earth shall acknowledge the grandeur of Jerusalem. And that was not really God's intention. That never really Happened. In fact, just a couple hundred years less, like less than a couple hundred years later, it would be leveled by the Babylonians, would not ever receive again the glory that it had in the days of David and Solomon. You see, there were spiritual implications to the statement. It wasn't physical Jerusalem that Isaiah was talking about, it was spiritual Jerusalem, it was heavenly Jerusalem. It was the ultimate Zion, not the Zion that was the city of David. And a lot of that is not appreciated at the latter parts of the book of Isaiah. Uh, Some beginning hints of that are found here in Isaiah chapter 35 that I want to share with you. There's a future time coming when the wilderness and the desert will Blossom profusely. Just imagine that. This will be like the land flowing with milk and honey again. Everything is going to blossom profusely. There's going to be plenty of vegetation and fruit and nourishment provided. There will be excessive water. The lame will leap like a deer. The streams in the Arabah, it says in verse 6. And then we come to verses 8 through 10, that give us this spiritual insight 
that Isaiah is providing. And a highway will be there. Now, we take that for granted, especially living in Houston or perhaps the Dallas area because the biggest things in those two cities are concrete. The highest hills are concrete. And, and so there's concrete everywhere. We understand highways, six, seven lanes on one side. I mean, we, we get that concept. Think about in biblical times, travel was a lot more difficult. It was a lot more perilous. And the Roman roads were really significant that the Romans built in allowing travel throughout the empire. And so the idea of a highway, a highway will be there, a roadway. Boy, you can really get somewhere on such a place, on such a road. But it's a different kind of highway. It shall be called a highway of holiness. Now, again, what does it mean to walk daily humbly with your king? It's about holiness. It's about setting yourself apart for the purposes of the Lord. A highway of holiness, he says. The unclean will not travel on it this will not be for those who engage in moral degradation as a pattern of their life it's not for them the unclean will not travel on it but it will be for him who walks that way and fools will not wander therein and fools will not wander on it isaiah tells us you know nobody gets to heaven and says wow this is great I don't know how I got here. How did I get here? I slid in the back door somewhere. How did that happen? Oh no, you, you'll know exactly why you're there. It will be for those who chose to walk that way. To enter the narrow door. To walk the straight path for the Lord. The path of holiness. Fools will not err therein. You won't accidentally or haphazardly or by accident get on this particular highway. This will be a highway of choice and decision and determination. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. Well, I don't know. What about persecution? You know, it sounds like that's, that's a pretty vicious uh, beast. And we have an adversary, a lion. A roaring lion who seeks someone to devour? Well, the point is that our safety and security is of the Lord. And there are forces and there are negative things about, but we'll be able to traverse that highway successfully because we belong to the Lord. Now, who's going to be on this highway? And this tells us of the spiritual dimension when it says the redeemed will walk there. Isn't that awesome? If you're on the highway of holiness, and that's what I want to encourage each of us to be, if you're there, you have been redeemed. You have been purchased with a price. And by the price that was paid, you have been enabled to walk on this spectacular highway. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. And how will they return? They will come with joyful shouting to Zion. With everlasting joy upon their heads, they will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing 
will flee away. This is the beginning of a concept that will be repeated throughout Scripture about no tears. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. God will remove all of those things that cause us such depth of pain and despair. God is our hope. He will bring us joy. We will be people of rejoicing. Hey, I read that in Philippians somewhere. We will be people of rejoicing despite pain and difficulty because of the promises that we have in Christ and the hope of glory that we have. So the ransomed of the Lord will return. I have been bought by my God to walk on this spectacular path that He has laid out for me. What should be the response, the appropriate response to that? I probably should have preached before we sang this morning. We should come with joyful shouting. I should not speak too loud right there. I've been warned about that. Maybe I should move over here. Come with joyful shouting. That's the only typical and fitting response to such a thing as this. And yet so often we find ourselves just going through the motion. After all, we did this last Sunday or the Sunday before that. We had a gospel meeting in the spring. We've been through 30 gospel meetings through the years. You know, just flat worn me out. Uh, this, this spiritual exercise that we do here. And we find ourselves going through the motions, finding ourselves in a rut, not investing of our hearts like perhaps we once did. I first started preaching in Indianapolis, Indiana in 1984. That was my first full-time work. I'd done a preacher training program in 1983 in Plainfield, Indiana. So it tells you how long I've been preaching. I know you look at me and say he can't be that old, but he is. No, you're saying he can't be that old. Okay, so I first started preaching in Indianapolis, and after three years, I got to Texas as quick as I could. That's what we were talking about before services this morning. I came down in 1987 when Dee said, hey, why don't you come down and work with us at Southside in Pasadena, and you need to come to Texas. So I did. And so I went back and held a meeting in Indianapolis a couple years later. And when I had gotten there, my friend Tommy Pledger, who also got to Texas as quick as he could, he lives in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Some of you know him. He was the preacher who followed me. And there was a new convert there in the congregation, went back to hold the meeting. And, and I, I'll never forget her. She was, she was on fire for the Lord. I mean, just a breath of fresh air. She, she was so excited about her newfound faith. And there was a potluck that evening. And she came up to me at the potluck. I said, I wish more people would do this. You know, she came up to me, and I'll never forget, nobody's ever asked me a question like this since. If there is one thing you could tell me in my newfound faith in the Lord to help me in my journey, what would it be? And I thought for about a millisecond, and I said this to her, I hope you have as much joy and as much zeal and as much fervor in your faith 10 years from now 
as you do today. Because so often in our journey, in our walk, we lose sight of the extraordinary, incredible nature of what we possess and what we are and what we're called to do in Christ. It should be reflected in the way we worship in the way we invest ourselves, in the way we sing, and the kind of passion we bring to the table every Lord's Day. And if somebody were to ask me, why do you preach like this? And I, I tend to get a little excited. Because I get to tell you about the most wonderful message that exists in the world. Why wouldn't I get excited about that? I get to talk to people about it and tell them how wonderful it is. And how they need to follow it for life and life everlasting. You you need this. How can you, if I don't get excited about this, shame on me. And I know some of this is about personality, but I, I, I grew up listening to people with personalities. A preacher named Johnny Edwards. And uh, he, he was a wonderful fella. He's still alive, actually. But uh, he would get done preaching, snap his feet like that. Well, we stand and sing. You know, I, I never really mastered that. And a really loud snap. One time the song leader went to sleep during one of his sermons. That was a mistake. He was known to write their initials on the board. And they still stayed asleep. They circled them. Everybody, get up. He saw that song leader sleeping. He snapped his fingers in the middle of the sermon. And he stood up and started singing the invitation song. So I learned a lot. I worked with Johnny Edwards for a time in 1983. And. Of course, one of the most influential preachers in my early life uh, was Robert Jackson. You ever heard that name? Boy, a great, great orator, great preacher of the gospel. So those guys, they could get after it, and I could name a bunch of others, and D. Bowman came along shortly after that, and he could really put some passion into things. And so those guys influenced me a lot when, when I was young. But, but Leon knows this too. We, we have to put passion in this. This is that important. As, as we preach the gospel. Come with joyful shouting. In 1988, the Los Angeles Dodgers won the World Series. I was telling Houston Astros fans about this because, you know, they've been to the World Series several times in the last five years. Trust me, that may not continue forever if you're a Houston Astros fan. I grew up in the southern Indiana area, and I was a Cincinnati Reds fan, and I grew up during the era of the big red machine. And I still have a lot of great... You want to know anything about that, I can tell you. And you don't want to know. But, but Pete Rose was my childhood hero. And then here's my team, the Cincinnati Reds, who haven't been to the World Series in 30 years. Well, it's interesting that the Dodgers did not win another World Series after 1988 until, what was it, last year, 2020. So they went a long time, the Los Angeles Dodgers, without winning the World Series. But in 1988, they had this pitcher who was the MVP of the series, whose name was Oral Hershiser. You might remember the name. I think he's in the Hall of Fame. But Oral was the MVP of the series, and as a result... He was on the Johnny Carson show after the series was over. 
And I tried to find a YouTube of this, but I, I don't think it exists, sadly. I don't know where I would find it. I was trying to find the video of this, what I'm about to tell you. During the late innings of the last World Series game, one of the cameras caught Oral Hershiser at the end of the dugout just speaking something. And he wasn't talking to anyone. And so when he got on the Johnny Carson show, Johnny asked him about that and said, what were you saying at the end of the dugout when the camera focused on you and there was no one there and you were just talking? He said, well, I wasn't talking. He goes, well, if you weren't talking, what were you doing? He goes, I was singing. And Johnny Carson was a little puzzled by that and says, well, I didn't know you were a singer. Why don't you sing for us? And the audience, oh, that's a good idea. So the audience all cheering, oral, to sing something. and what, Sing what you were singing. And he goes, no, he was really reluctant to do that, but of course the audience was egging him on, egging him on to do it. And so he said, okay, and here's what he's saying. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures, here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. And there was stunned silence. Johnny Carson said, that's sweet. And then somebody in the audience began to clap. And then everybody joined. The clapping for oral. Praise to God. It was an important part of oral's life, even as he was winning a World Series. How important is praise in your life? I want to suggest that worship is fuel for the godly heart and a life of holiness and service to God. Praise in your life should attend the ransomed of the Lord. It should just be a part of your day. It should be a part of your world to praise Him for His excellencies. It's all over the Psalms, isn't it? And when we come to the New Testament, in the great message of the apocalypse, in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, what is happening around that awesome throne scene? It is described for us in human terms what John saw as he saw the one sitting on the throne, a rainbow in appearance and beautiful glistening things, all the glory of God depicted there. Does not match what John was seeing with his eyes. And everything that was around the throne was focused on God as everything the 24 elders, the four living creatures, all the host of heaven saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Interesting portrait. I have to admit, I have not done it justice in the past. How does it fit in the book of Revelation? These two chapters, the throne scene, and all the Horrible things that follow. A lot of scary things. A lot of death. 
martyrdom. Following the letters to the seven churches, we're studying them at home at Decker Prairie on Wednesday nights. We've now moved through all of chapter 2, the first four churches. We're ready to start Sardis. And of course, five of the seven churches have uh, significant concerns and problems, and they're all challenged to repent of, of those things, or else I will come quickly, Jesus says. He told the Laodiceans, I will spew you out of my mouth. And I stand at the door and knock. You, you need to respond. And so sometimes churches on earth lose their way. And so what is this throne scene really all about? Adela and I spend a lot of time in Tampa, Florida. Uh, our families are there. And there are things that necessitate frequent trips to Tampa. And so we went recently to the Citrus Park congregation where Collie Caldwell and Matt Qualls preached together. They also serve as elders. That's unusual. And Collie was preaching that particular morning, and he's taught the book of Revelation at Florida College. He was the president of Florida College for a time. And, and he taught that morning, part of his sermon was about Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. And, and he said some things about those two chapters. He said, I, I talked to him afterwards, and I said, where did you come up with that? You know, because I really liked your approach to that. He said, well, I was trying to teach those two chapters in one class, and, and this is what I found. Those around the throne who are speaking to God say four things in chapter 4 and chapter 5. The first thing that we see them say as they are praising at the throne is that they are addressing God who was and who is and who is to come. The second thing that we see three verses later is this acknowledgement, for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. You move into chapter 5. And a scroll is found. With seven seals. Who's going to be able to take that scroll and open it? There was only one who was found. Who was worthy. Only one person. And that is the Lamb. And the reason why he was worthy to take the scroll. And to open its seals. And that affects everything that follows in the book of Revelation. Are those seals coming off that scroll. He says, because you were slain. They, the people around the because you were slain. And then this, in verse 12. This one, the Lamb, has power and wealth, wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So these four statements are made of God and the Lamb in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. Well, what are they telling us about God and the Lamb? The one who sits upon the throne has an eternal nature. He is the one who was, and who is, and who is to come. And he did an awesome creative work. Everything that exists, exists because of him. And then in chapter 5, we see Jesus, the one who was slain, because of his redemptive work, because he is exalted Savior. May I suggest to you that these four things are the why of praise. They are the reason the ransomed of the Lord come with joyful shouting. Because of God's eternal nature, because of his creative work, because of Jesus' redemptive 
work and because he is reigning now as king and lord, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, after having made purification of sins, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says. And so as those four things are presented about God and why God is worthy of praise and devotion, and this is our why this morning, for devoting ourselves to him in this way and devoting our lives to him. Two thoughts flow out of that that I want to share with you. And this is what the rest of the book of Revelation is really telling us. These four things are what is always true regardless of the chaos. In our lives there are ups and downs, there are good times and bad, there are exhilarating, wonderful, joyful moments, and there is pain and tragedy. About four years ago, I was in Tampa visiting my parents, and I got a phone call late at night, it's about 10 p.m., from one of our elders, Mike Moriarty. And the words that came out of his mouth were, Waylon is dead. Waylon was one of our elders. He had only been with us for a few years. He was my amen corner. He would say, amen, that's right. He influenced some of our young men to do the same. They had met at the building to talk with the family in crisis. And as he left the building, he went out in a way that is now blocked, right by a railroad track. He had always encouraged his grandchildren to not go out that way, but for some reason he went out that way that night. And a drunk driver, driving over 70 miles an hour, came up over the railroad tracks and was airborne and hit him in the driver's side door. And he died instantly. And Mike, who had just met with him and the other family, was the first one on the scene to see his friend and fellow elder had passed from this life. It was devastating. It's still devastating to his family. It was devastating to us as a church. We still talk about him all the time. He was a great man, a great Texan, a godly man who loved the word of God. Horrible things happen in our world. Sudden tragic losses. Both of my parents passed within eight days this summer. It's a long, sad story really in many respects. Hard things happen. My wife Della has had significant eye issues, retina detachments, both eyes requiring laser surgery just this summer at the same time. Oh, both of us had COVID too. What's the deal? You know, a lot of negative things happen in our world. But here's the thing you need to understand. Whatever comes to your doorstep, whatever it is that you have to handle or traverse, whatever turmoil as we read about in the latter stages of the book of Revelation, no matter what opposition comes, Gog and Magog, and however scary and fierce it is, as they encircle 
the saints, to bring them harm. Whatever the forces are that be out there that create havoc and unrest, whatever the difficulties that come to your life, count it all joy, James says. Count it all joy. And we can do that because those four things are true. And they will always be true. And that also says something very important. And that is that we need to keep our eyes riveted on the spirit realm. The ultimate realities. And isn't that what the Hebrew writer is telling us? We have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, those trailblazers of faith who have gone on to their reward, who are telling us you can make it to the end. You have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding you that tell you to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us and run with endurance. Endurance. You stay with it. Run with endurance. The race that is set before us more on that Wednesday night. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author of and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Encourage the faint-hearted. Strengthen the weak. He would go on to say in Hebrews chapter 12, and then he would say, And pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is what we do. And we do it because those things are true of our God. And of our Savior. We set ourselves apart. For His purposes. Because we are the ransom. Of the Lord. So I want to conclude with this thought. I'll tell you what you can find walking the highway of holiness. As the ransomed of the Lord, you can find forgiveness and purpose and hope in the service of the King and know that He will be your judge at the end of your days. Are you ready for that inevitable interview with the King? If there's someone in this audience this morning who needs to respond to the invitation, perhaps you've not started walking the highway yet, and we can assist you in doing that today and putting your faith and hope in Jesus, who is real, who is ready to cleanse you from your sins. Or if there's someone who's just lost your way, the sin that so easily besets us has come to your door, and you need the help and prayers of the saints To get back on the right track on the highway of the holiness of our God. If we can assist you in some way, let's stand and sing.